It's amazing how uh, music and the Lord uses music and song and lyrics to kind of sear things into your mind. I, when I saw that uh, that was the hymn that we would be singing this morning, I grew up in a sort of traditional Texas Southern Baptist church, and so I, I learned and heard this song, that, that, that hymn sung time and time and time again, but I do not literally know the last time I remember hearing that or singing that. I, I mean, maybe we have here and I just don't recall, but I can tell you that I remembered every single word. Like it just all came flooding back to me, and so it's, I just always find it fascinating the way the Lord kind of wires our minds and uses even song to help us remember truth. Of course, the words are up here, and I am not going to be singing a solo, so no worries there. As we begin to look again at 1 Corinthians chapter 12, and really this larger study that the Apostle Paul has taken us into in this matter of spiritual gifts in the life of the church, I want to just continue to remind us that what we are really looking at here and what we are really having to contend with as we study this passage is what is likely some level of discrepancy between how we have been inclined to think about spiritual gifts, maybe how uh, you were informed about spiritual gifts in your spiritual upbringing, or maybe how we view spiritual gifts just sort of innately. Uh, maybe just the the nature of the terminology, uh, that we are contending with a little bit of of conflict in that. Uh, We tend to, I think, I'm using the term we broadly, but I think generally speaking, it's not uncommon for believers in the life of the church, regardless of your sort of theological stripe or your particular um, understanding of spiritual gifts and their operation within the context of a local church, I think the tendency for us is to view spiritual gifts as some kind of, uh, again, forgive me because I don't want to insult anybody's sort of sensibilities here, but there's a little bit of a viewing them as some sort of trinket that that we we pick up and we start to use so that we can kind of do our thing in the church. Now, I'm obviously exaggerating a little bit, but hopefully you understand what I'm, I'm getting at, is that, is that we come at this study or this discussion of spiritual gifts as something that we need to get. It's the idea of something that we need to kind of lay hold of. And, and even if the, the sort of the mindset that is behind that is, is that we can lay hold of or understand our own gifting more effectively so that we can be used more effectively in the church. I mean, I'm not necessarily questioning all of our motives in that regard. I'm just simply pointing out that when you come to 1 Corinthians chapters 12 through 14, what we're dealing with here is the Apostle Paul addressing a massive correction for the church. In other words, even the nature of the listing itself that we're going to be looking at or begin to look at a little more closely today, there is correction and redirection in and through this entire study. And so we have to be mindful of that. And so for that reason, I do want to spend a little bit of time uh, reviewing what we talked about last week as, as a way of introduction before we kind of step into what we're going to focus on today. But let me read the, the focal verses for us. We're looking at chapter 12 of 1 Corinthians and verses 7 through 11 where he begins to articulate or list out some of the gifts that were in operation in Corinth. He says, To each is given the manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. For to one is given through the Spirit the utterance of wisdom, and to another the utterance of knowledge according to the same Spirit, to another faith by the same Spirit, to another gifts of healing by the one Spirit, to another the working of miracles, to another prophecy, to another the ability to distinguish between spirits, To another, various kinds of tongues. To another, the interpretation of tongues. All these are empowered by one and the same Spirit who apportions to each one individually as he wills. I came across what I thought was a a pretty interesting and and insightful uh, comment on this particular section where the Apostle Paul begins to enumerate various gifts, begins to illustrate them by identifying specific gifts. Uh, This is a comment from Gordon Fee, who 
just as a point of reference, is what we would consider to be a continuationist theologian, meaning that he uh, would affirm that all the spiritual gifts, the ones that you see listed here in 1 Corinthians chapters 12, 13, and 14, and in other places in the New Testament, are currently in operation and are to be normative within the church today. That's what I mean by continuationist theologian. But he, he writes very carefully about uh, his, uh, 1 Corinthians 12 through 14. And here's how he, he kind of identifies this. And we talked about this uh, a little bit last week, and that'll kind of come out in our review in just a moment. But here's what Gordon Fee says. He says, Paul's argument is entirely ad hoc, reflecting the Corinthian situation itself. Therefore, his own concern is not with instruction about spiritual gifting. That's kind of what I was alluding to just a moment ago. It's not about spiritual gifting as such, their number and kinds. That is the fascination of a later time. Indeed, the list of nine items is neither carefully worked out nor exhaustive. It is merely representative of the Spirit's diverse ways of being present among them, which Paul calls a manifestation, so that the Corinthian believers will stop being singular in their own emphasis. Correction. That's, that's corrective a comment there. All of this suggests not only that we do not have here a systematic presentation of spirit gifting, but also that there is some doubt as to whether the apostle himself had precise and identifiably different manifestations in mind when he wrote these words. In any case, he would almost certainly not recognize some of the schematizing that later interpreters have brought to these texts whose interests often tend to lie elsewhere. I think it's a very helpful comment on this particular section. Our tendency is to want to formulize everything, to want to put things into neat boxes, into a sort of a spreadsheet field. We, We want to kind of understand things very systematically and very logically. And yet, the nature of this particular passage is not really oriented that way. It doesn't reflect Paul's broader intent in his instruction. It certainly doesn't follow exegetically in the way that you would understand the text, both uh, historically and grammatically and even linguistically. And so this comment by someone who is, in fact, a believer in the continuation of the gifts for our time, regardless of what the manifestation is, he's providing what I think is a very helpful caution for us as we consider these various gifts. Now, just to remind us of some of this context that that we need to have in mind, this background that we need to have in mind as we continue into our more specific study. Last week, we we drew out from these opening verses how the Apostle Paul is addressing the very, very diverse nature of spiritual gifts. And that's that's what Gordon Fee was alluding to as well. In in verses 4 and 5, he says there are varieties of gifts, there are varieties of service, there are varieties of activities. There's this focus on the varied nature of spiritual gifts. We looked at how this term here, this term for varied, is really a a, a term that means to divide, or it kind of has this, this idea of distribution, of apportionment. There is a wide distribution of spiritual gifts, variously dispersed, variously apportioned. And again, thinking in terms of correction, what was in play in the church in Corinth was a narrowing of that understanding. That giftedness was narrowly defined and most narrowly defined in the form of something that uh, that was characteristic of the the orator, the, the prominent gifted speaker, the, the, the sophist of the day, the, the, the modern-day, first-century Corinthian philosopher-sophist who would captivate a crowd through their, their oratory, for, through their cleverness and the way that they would communicate things through their rhetoric. And, and they had sort of a celebrity status in that day and time. And so the Apostle Paul here is providing a corrective to say, you have narrowed your understanding of how gifts are distributed. There was also an elitist mindset within the life of Corinth. We looked at that even in the context of chapter 11, uh, surrounding the the instruction there about the Lord's Supper. Those that were the haves were sort of uh, minimizing those that had little. 
You have in first century Corinth this coming together of the elite wealthy class with the slave class and everything in between into one church in Christ. And this kind of unity did not happen. There was social economic stratification that was embedded into that culture, and yet they're called into common life, common spiritual life in Christ, common fellowship that they are to share. And the Apostle Paul is calling them out for carrying into even the manifestation of the gifts of the Spirit that are to be for the common good. He's calling them out to say, you have narrowly understood how these gifts are distributed. They're, they're, they're diverse in nature, and they've been distributed diversely. They are manifest in a variety of ministry contexts. That's why he says there are varieties of service. That's a term that we get the, the term deacon. It's a really could be translated ministry here. There are varieties of ministries. So there's a variety of, of contexts in which these variously dispersed spiritual gifts are in operation or would, de- would be deployed in the life of the church. And we talked about last week about how important it is for every believer, for the Corinthians for sure, but for every believer, for every one of us to understand this particular important point. If spiritual gifts, in, even in, in our mind's eye or the way that we understand them or the way that we think about our, our sort of um, uh, receipt of them, our use of the gifts that we may have, if we have such a narrow understanding of the context in which spiritual gifts are to be deployed and used in the life of the church, we will be contributing to the lack of health in the life of the church. The fa- Excuse me, the fact of the matter is, is that Spiritual gifts, if confined to sort of some public oratory kind of context, I mean, think about even our church. I mean, our church, I'm, I'm assuming, was larger than the Corinthian church and you know, more organized and maybe more structured in certain ways. But even in the context of our local church, there aren't that many venues for sort of public you know, communication of some kind of spiritual gift of teaching or something like that. Very narrow opportunity there. And the Apostle Paul would call that out to say that's, that's way too much of a minimization of the context in which gifts can be deployed and should be deployed. There are diverse ministries or varieties of service. And then he talks about the diverse effects or varieties of activities. This energizing term, this power, this operation, this working out kind of idea here. And so in the same way that the gifts are dispersed or distributed diversely, And in the same way that they are deployed in a variety of ministry contexts, they're also diversely effective. They're variously effective. And all of this, all of this, the distribution, the context in which they are used or deployed, and the effect that every execution or deployment or manifestation of a spiritual gift has is varied in nature and and is completely contingent upon or dependent upon the sovereign will of the Spirit who gives the gifts. It doesn't depend upon anyone's innate natural abilities, in other words. It's not contingent upon some kind of breadth or depth of experience, though the Lord uses all of that in the life of His church and through the way that He gifts us individually and the way that we use our experience and our wisdom and our our experience with other people and that kind of thing. He uses all of that. But the fact of the matter is, is that the effect of the use of spiritual gifts is as diverse as the context in which they are deployed, which is as diverse as the way that they're apportioned or divided up amongst the body of Christ, amongst God's people. This focus on diversity is huge in this particular section. And then we talked about last time how there is a diverse unity which sounds a little bit like a contradiction in terms, but, but really when you, when you look at chapter 12, verses 4 through 7, kind of in total, you, you see this diverse unity. There are varieties of gifts, but the same Spirit. There are varieties of service, but the same Lord. There are varieties of activities, but the same God who empowers them all in everyone. And then in verse 7, sort of this summary verse of this introductory section here in the, in the gift list, this illustration of the gifts, he says, To each is given the manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. So to each would be kind of a reference to the diverse distribution. 
But this reference for the, uh, of the purpose of the gifts that they're given to each one is for the common good. That is an indication of the purpose of unity. There is a diverse unity in the way that the Lord has given spiritual gifts to his people in the life of the church. There is this emphasis in this section, as there is throughout this entire study, as there is throughout a lot of Paul's uh, instructions to churches and other, and other New Testament epistles, this, at the same time, diversity and sameness, diversity and unity that's referenced over and over again. We actually looked at that in Ephesians last time. But, but here you see it in reference to the gifts themselves. He even employs what many uh, scholars would see as sort of uh, the Apostle Paul's sort of reference to his understanding of God as a, as a triune God. Because he speaks of the Spirit, the Lord, which is kurios, which is a reference to Christ, and God, theos, which is a reference to God the Father in his articulation of this. The same Spirit, the same Lord, the same God. So in the same way that there is diversity of personhood in the triune nature of God, there is unity in the Godhead, one God in three persons. And so it's even the Apostle Paul employing what you could say is a theological backdrop to emphasize our understanding, to sort of highlight what we need to understand about this diverse nature of spiritual gifts. And then we began to talk last week about this diverse illustration of spiritual gifts that we see beginning in in chapter uh, 12, verses 8 through 11 that we just read, where we emphasize the point that this is not an exhaustive list of gifts. This is an illustrative list of gifts, and it's actually the Apostle Paul illustrating the point that he is making in this particular letter. We can't miss that. Uh, The reason why we know that is because of the context, context itself, but also because there are other places in which there are gifts that are listed or enumerated in some fashion, and they don't overlap with 1 Corinthians chapters 12, 13, and 14. So if this was supposed to be some exhaustive list, then you've got problems. You've got problems where the Apostle Paul himself, for example, in Romans, does not list all these gifts again. So which one do you go to? Which gift, do you, which gift list do you go to to find you know, the right list of gifts? And so the point is, is that This particular section in verses 8 through 11 of chapter 12 is intended primarily to be illustrative of the Apostle Paul's point, not specific to give us a list so that we can use it to formulate our spiritual gifts test so that then we can take our spiritual gifts test and know what some online platform assigns us as our spiritual gift so that we can get busy at using our spiritual gift. That is not what's going on here. And if you've done that recently, I'm not trying to mock you. I'm really not. I'm just trying to make the point that this is so widespread in terms of the understanding of spiritual gifts. And in my estimation, it so misses the mark of what the Apostle Paul is actually instructing here in 1 Corinthians chapter 12. It so misses the mark. And again, just to kind of reiterate the point that I've been sort of hinting at a little bit all along the way, our our core tendency... Sadly, even as we are in Christ and we are seeking to be sanctified and work out our salvation with fear and trembling, even as we are gathered together, even in this place, seeking to learn and to grow and to study God's word together and to be accountable to other believers, even even in the midst of all those evidences of spiritual life and, and inclination toward honoring Christ with our lives, even in the midst of all that, we have to acknowledge that we are still entrapped in our flesh. And in our flesh, we have a proclivity toward self-reference, toward pride, toward recognition or affirmation, make me feel good about myself, somebody tell me I'm doing a good job, somebody kind of give me a sort of attaboy kind of thing to make sure that I'm not, you know, I get wavering a little bit. I start to waver and I get insecure if I don't have somebody telling me, you know, you're, you're, you're really doing a good job. Well, you, you bring that kind of that sort of in our fallen flesh kind of tendency for us into this context of the use of spiritual gifts. And it's easy for us to see how we're looking for some kind of affirmation that, that, you know, we're, we're doing what we're supposed to be doing in the church. Someone give me a box to check. Someone give me a specific assignment. Somebody, somebody tell me, you know what, this is your jam. 
you do it in the church and everybody will love you for it. I mean, I know I'm being a little bit sort of, you know, I don't know, silly about this, but I hope you understand the point. Our inclination is toward that. And, and if, that is, if that goes unabated, then we could even find ourselves with maybe some very noble and, and even spiritually inclined intentions moving in a direction where we're trying to get something that we can then use so that we can then sort of have something to lock into, that we're doing a good job. We're doing what we're supposed to be doing. And I would just argue that, and this is, this is what is, common, is the common counsel that you, you might hear from other leaders and elders in the, in the life of this church, our focus tends to be, look, just serve. Just, just find out where there's a need and serve. And over time, you will begin to use whatever gifts God's given you. In other words, I, I'm convinced and becoming more and more convinced that the use of spiritual gifts is not excessively front-of-mind consciousness kind of activity. It is about submitting to the call of God on my life and to serve the body in however way He providentially provides me opportunity. And in that just desire to be serving the Lord by serving His people and seeking to grow through my fellowship and my common life with this local body... That the gifts, the gift or gifts that the Spirit graciously and sovereignly gives to each believer begins to manifest. And it's not as though every believer will finally go, oh, there it is. I see it now. I see that I now have this gift. That's totally self-referential, which is totally counterintuitive to Paul's primary point, which was the significant problem that he's trying to address with the people in Corinth. Self-reference, self-adulation, pride, arrogance. Already you have become kings. Already you are rich. He mocks them previously in the letter. Kind of indicating their mindset, that they had already sort of arrived spiritually. The fact of the matter is, is that we need to be mindful of this fact that the instruction that we're looking at here is not so much a, a, a means for us to go and sort of identify, consciously identify a spiritual gift that we can say, yeah, that, I think that's me. That sounds like me. That seems like me. Now I just got to figure out, you know, where I can use it. So I'm going to, you know, I'm going to fill out a form online to the church and say, hey, where can I start using this gift? I mean, that's... That's totally programmatic, sort of systematized thinking that is not what's in view here. It's an illustrative list to kind of highlight or emphasize the, pr- the primary point that the Apostle Paul is making, namely that there is a diversity of gifts that are sovereignly given by the Spirit for the common good and the building up of the body to the glory of God And they are utilized or deployed or manifest in a variety of contexts with a variety of effects. This is what he's going after here. This is is about the context of 1 Corinthians. This is about what the Apostle Paul is teaching, not so much what we can sort of apprehend to lay hold of some kind of affirmation of our usefulness in the body of Christ. Like I said... The more I get to know, or I guess you'd say, the more the Lord graciously, yet often painfully, reveals to me the dark places of my own heart, the more I become convinced that any form of self-referential affirmation is not the motivation of the Spirit in me. That, That is not what needs to be emphasized or highlighted. And in fact, you see the Apostle Paul sort of speaking to this previously when he's talking about, he's going after their their factious, you know, loyalty to various leaders. And he says, what is Paul, really? What is Apollos? Servants. I planted, Apollos watered, but it was God who gave the growth. So even Corinthians and your fealty to even me by some of you is 
totally misplaced, not just on a personal level, but on a grand scale. I, 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 am, I am refuse. What are the apostles but the scum of the earth, he says. And so this whole idea, this whole sort of instruction and, and study and thought process about spiritual gifts in the life of the church, I'm just compelled to continue to remind us that we need to run away from any notions that, that compel us to sort of lay hold of something that we can then use and, and find some kind of self-affirmation in. Now, that's not to say that counsel and encouragement and all that is not needed and, and getting advice on, on, on these matters is not, is not important or you should avoid that. I'm talking about what's going on in our own hearts. I'm talking about us being very sensitive and clear about what's going on in our own hearts as we think about this. So, let's, let's, make, let's uh, move to a closer examination of these gifts. We're not going to get very far today because the first two that are mentioned... Are, are significant in their implications, but then when you get into the next sort of uh, section of gifts there, I really need to kind of do a, a bigger study of, of those other gifts that are listed. So today we're going to look at the first couple uh, that are listed here. Again, quoting Gordon Fee on this section, he says, because this is the first of several such listings of gifts in the Pauline corpus, Considerable interest has been generated over this passage in terms of the nature and meaning of the various gifts or manifestations themselves. But as noted above, that lies quite outside Paul's own interest, which is simply to illustrate the diversity of the Spirit's activities, manifestations in the church. And I would add the diversity of the Spirit's manifestations or activities in the Corinthian church, if you want to get real local to what the Apostle Paul is doing here. So what do we have here? Well, right there in in verse 8, the first part of verse 8, you have this reference to the utterance of wisdom. The utterance of wisdom. For one, to one is given through the Spirit the utterance of wisdom. You could also consider this the message of wisdom. The, The term there is logos, the term for word of wisdom, Sophia, this term that he uses throughout this epistle. So you have this reference to the utterance or the message or the speaking of wisdom. Now, I'm going to give you a definition that I, I put together myself. This is just me kind of, I, I, I read, I can't tell you how many different commentaries, uh, definitions or ways that they try to describe uh, these particular gifts. What I can tell you is that in particular with this fir- these first two, the utterance of wisdom and the utterance of, lo- of knowledge, uh, there's not a lot of like tacit, clear, common agreement on how to really narrowly or succinctly define these two gifts. Some would argue that they're sort of two sides of the same coin, that they need to be sort of looked at sort of as complementary gifts or sort of a complementary gift combination. Uh, it, it, some, some define the gift of wisdom and the gift of knowledge in complete reverse ways. You could go to one one commentator and they will sort of define the gift of wisdom in the same way that another commentator will define the gift of knowledge and vice versa. So I say that to say this this is me just sort of trying to to pull all this together, but, but also hopefully what I'll be able to in some way support, trying to stick to the New Testament letter of 1 Corinthians as the principal guide for understanding what the Apostle Paul is referring to. In other words, trying to stay close to the context of this particular letter to try to understand what he might possibly be referring to. As I've already said, and as Gordon Fee articulated, this is an illustrative list, and so the Apostle Paul doesn't say, to to one is given the utterance of wisdom. And what I mean by that is blah, 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 blah. You don't have that. You just don't have that. So... This is, again, just to illustrate his other point. But for this message of wisdom, this utterance of wisdom, here's the definition that I put together. A unique spirit-enabled ability to communicate the deep truths of God's revelation and their implications for believers individually and for the church corporately. And I'll say that one more time. Not that it's super insightful, but I'll say it one more time since I read a long sentence there. 
a unique spirit-enabled ability to communicate the deep truths of God's revelation and their implications for believers individually and for the church corporately. John Wesley says this about this particular gift. He calls it a power of understanding and explaining the manifold wisdom of God in the grand scheme of gospel salvation. David Dixon, a Scottish Puritan theologian and pastor, says this, This first gift, the word of wisdom, is the seasonable application of sound doctrine to the hearers, which is the gift of a pastor. So the idea here and the, and the way that I tried to kind of formulate my working definition is that this is a, about communicating profound, deep, spiritual truth about God's revelation, about what he has revealed and what the implications of that insight or that truth should be for individual believers and also for the church, depending upon the nature of the, the truth that's being communicated. I think, of, I think of someone who's really gifted in counseling, having, having a, needing to have the gift of wisdom, I should say. Being able to really understand the depth of, of implication of biblical truth, and not just understand it, but to be able to communicate it, to convey it helpfully, to a fellow believer. That, that's just one practical uh, venue or context for this type, type of gift. Certainly uh, in various uh, teaching and, and, and public uh, ministry roles for sure. But the, the, the idea of counseling to me just really uh, looms large in my mind as I think about it. Now, in first century Corinth, this gift had sort of a revelatory element associated with it. Simply because God was revealing the mystery of salvation through the gospel of Jesus Christ that the apostles were proclaiming to Jews and Gentiles throughout the Roman Empire. I know that's a long sentence, but let me say it again. In the first century, in Corinth, this word of wisdom, this utterance of wisdom, this message of wisdom as a spiritual gift, certainly had a revelatory, a revelation, a revelatory element associated with it because in the first century, what was happening? But that God, through the teaching of the apostles, was revealing the, the gospel, the saving gospel of salvation through Jesus Christ as the atoning sacrifice for sin. There, there was an element where the deployment of this gift coincided with the progressive revelation of God's redemptive plan in Christ. Even so, this is the, sort of the, the qualifier to that, even so, this gift was anchored to the authoritative and foundational teaching of the apostles. So it wasn't some kind of foray into sort of new, additional, or novel revelation. So when I... When I use the term, it, was probably, it probably had a revelatory element associated with it. I just simply mean it was the first century. It was the time in which God, for example, the Apostle Paul, through, through the Apostle Paul in Corinth, was revealing to them the redemptive plan of God that was culminated in the atoning work of Christ on the cross. They were living and operating as a local church in the time of that period of revelation, if you will. But anyone who would operate in that gift of, of the utterance or the message of wisdom, whatever they would convey would be anchored to what the apostles were teaching. I mean, when you go back to Acts chapter 2... At the dawn of the first century church, of the New Testament church, you see there in Acts chapter 2, verse 42, that they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. And then, if you go back to 1 Corinthians chapter 3, you find the apostle Paul there articulating this, this essential foundation that the apostles 
apostles represent. Starting in verse 10 of chapter 3, he says, According to the grace of God given to me, like a skilled master builder, I laid a foundation, and someone else is building upon it, likely a reference to Apollos. Let each one take care how he builds upon it. For no one can lay a foundation other than that which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. He is making a comprehensive statement about the doctrinal foundations of the gospel message, the the revelation of Jesus Christ to the Corinthians. He's saying, you better be careful how you build upon this foundation. There is no other foundation. So whatever you're building upon it is anchored to this foundation. You don't need to experiment with new sort of utterances of wisdom that somehow have fallen upon you that in some way differs or in any way undermines this foundation that was laid. He says, if anyone builds on the foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, straw, each one's work will become manifest for the day will disclose it because it will be revealed by fire and the fire will test what sort of work each one has done. If the work that anyone has built on the foundation survives, he will receive a reward. So there is this anchoring that has a judgment component to it. Excuse me, this uh, this continued building that has a judgment component to it, whatever the fruit of that is, insofar as it is upon this one and only foundation, it will be judged and it will survive the test and it will be rewarded. But if anyone's work is burned up, he will suffer loss. Uh, the wood, hay, and stubble, precious stones, wood, hay, and straw. Yeah, that's right. It'll be manifest. The day will disclose it. If anyone's work is burned up, verse 15, he will suffer loss, though he himself will be saved, but only through fire. So this is the point. Even though there could have been a revelatory component to this utterance of wisdom because of the time in which the gift was in operation in first century Corinth, it was anchored to the foundation of the apostles' teaching. Which it just so happens we have now canonized for us in the scriptures. Gordon Fee, again, his definition, and just to remind you, he is a continuationist scholar. He says this, the phrase means either a message or utterance full of wisdom or an utterance characterized by wisdom. In either case, its content is probably to be understood in light of Paul's own argument much earlier in chapter 2. There, the message of wisdom revealed by the Spirit is not some special understanding of the deeper things or mysteries of God. Rather, it is the recognition that the message of Christ crucified is God's true wisdom, a recognition that comes only to those who have received the Spirit. So that's what he's referring to the foundation of the apostles' teaching, the gospel that was delivered to them. This is probably a reference to that. Now, if you turn to chapter 2, you see this, you, you, you kind of put this into the frame of Paul's larger instruction in 1 Corinthians, and you really see this sort of, I, I, I think you really see this much more vividly when you think about what could this utterance or this message of wisdom be about that the Apostle Paul is holding up as, as an illustration, as, a, as an example of one of the gifts. Starting in verse 1, he says, And I, when I came to you, brothers, did not come proclaiming to you the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom. He is now saying, I came, and in a sense, I didn't come exercising the quote-unquote gift of the utterance of wisdom. Now, he's going to go on to sort of explain what he means by that. He says, For I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. And I was with you in weakness and in fear and in much trembling. And my speech and my message were not in plausible words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the Spirit and of power. Again, the Corinthian believers were demonstrating a worldly wisdom in their own power, in their own talents, in their own social status, in their own recognition as an orator, whatever it might be. The Apostle Paul is saying, When I came to you, I came in a whole different frame of mind, operating in a whole different spiritual mindset. 
In my speech, he says, I was with you in weakness and in fear and much trembling. And my speech and my message were not implausible words of wisdom, but in a demonstration of the Spirit and of power, so that your faith might not rest in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. And then he says, yet among the mature, we do impart wisdom. So in other words, there is a word of wisdom, a message of wisdom that is truly of the Spirit of God. What, what I did not come in to, to communicate to you is a kind of wisdom that you tend to major on. I came to communicate to the mature to impart a true wisdom, although it is not a wisdom of this age or of the rulers of this age who are doomed to pass away. But we impart a secret and hidden wisdom of God, which God decreed before the ages for our glory. None of the rulers of this age understood this, for if they had, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. But as it is written, what no eye has seen, nor ear heard, nor the heart of man imagined, what God has prepared for those who love him. These things God has revealed to us through the Spirit. For the Spirit searches everything, even the depths of God. For who knows a person's thoughts except the Spirit of that person which is in him? So also, no one comprehends the thoughts of God except the Spirit of God. Now we have received not the Spirit of the world, but the Spirit who is from God, that we might understand the things freely given us by God. And we impart this in words, not taught by human wisdom, but taught by the Spirit, interpreting spiritual truths to those who are spiritual. The natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are folly to him, and he is not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. The spiritual person judges all things, but is himself to be judged by no one. For who has understood the mind of the Lord as to instruct him, but we have the mind of Christ. This is what I think is, is sort of the backdrop of the Apostle Paul's reference to a genuine utterance of wisdom by the same Spirit, he says. It is in contradistinction to any kind of quote-unquote worldly wisdom that is empowered by the spirit of the air or by human wisdom. This is, this is a contrast to that. And, and the focus of this particular section in chapter 2 is really on understanding the depths of the gospel in its fullness and what God is revealing in Christ Jesus. See, we have the benefit of going to, you know, 1 Corinthians or Galatians or Ephesians. We have this canon of New Testament literature that provides for us clear and explicit and repeated instruction of New Covenant gospel doctrine. But that wasn't what's going, what was available in the first century in Corinth. But apparently, there were those who upon receiving and devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching, which centered upon this revelation of Jesus Christ, salvation, once and for all sacrifice, the atoning work of of Christ for the forgiveness of sins to all who would believe, both Jew and Greek, this this staggering, earth-turning, upside-down message that the apostles brought there were those that the Spirit gave an under, a depth of understanding such that they were able to communicate that. Communicate that wisdom for the common good. There are those today who would attribute this to some kind of supernatural enablement to, you know, read someone's mind or to, you know, I don't know, interpret someone's thoughts in some kind of super mystical way. I just don't think that the text of 1 Corinthians lends itself to that kind of understanding. Forget about the broader context of the New Testament in terms of understanding the nature of spiritual gifts gifts and their operation in the church, both in the first century and on throughout church history, which we will talk about uh, in time. Now, there's a practical element to this, uh, this idea of the words of wisdom Uh, John MacArthur, I think, provides a more broad and practical kind of way to think about this. He says the word of wisdom is a broad term. Uh, The use of logos for word indicates that it is is a speaking ability. In the apostolic age, it may have been revelation at times, as I said. 
In the New Testament, wisdom is used most often to refer to the ability to understand God's will and apply it obediently. Wisdom, then, refers basically to applying truths discovered to the ability to make skillful and practical application of the truth to life situations. Communicating wisdom is the function of the expositor who draws not only from his own study of Scripture, but from the many insights and interpretations of commentators and other Bible scholars. So he goes into this idea about how this word of wisdom, the utterance of wisdom, can flow out of a depth of study and experience and wisdom gained uh, through counsel with other believers. But this is the idea of this word of wisdom. Now, quickly, the message... Or word of knowledge is sort of this companion gift that he mentions in the second part of verse 8. To another, the utterance of knowledge according to the same spirit, he says. I'll give you my working definition of that. A spirit-enabled ability to both accurately understand and clearly communicate the full counsel of God contained in his revealed word. Now, if that sounds somewhat similar to wisdom, that's the difficulty. I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm not sure I... I'm even capturing it the way it's meant. I'm I'm just trying to put some definition around this. A spirit-enabled ability both to accurately understand and clearly communicate the full counsel of God contained in his revealed word. I see this as a more broad gift, a more broadly deployed gift, you might say. Uh, Charles Hodge, the 19th century Princeton theologian, says this, The word of knowledge was the gift correctly to understand and properly to exhibit the truths revealed by the apostles and the prophets. So I think if I could just kind of apply a a slight distinction, uh, this has to do with, I I would say, being able to understand the, the breadth of God's revealed word, to apprehend it, and then to teach it or to convey it. Uh, in, in the Pillar New Testament commentary, he says this as a as sort of a contrast. He says, in popular Pentecostal and charismatic teaching, a word of knowledge is thought to refer to the supernatural communication of personal information about someone who is listening to the speaker, such as a revelation that someone in the congregation is suffering from a, a particular kind of cancer or that someone in the congregation has been carrying on an adulterous affair or some such like that. He says, of course, the Holy Spirit may communicate such information, But it is unlikely that that is what Paul has in mind. So he draws out this idea that the word of knowledge could be considered someone being able to sort of read your mail and tell you, hey, you know, I know about that sore elbow or, hey, I know about that woman or whatever. You know, you need to repent kind of thing. But that's not what is really going on here. You see, again, I'm going to point you to, and I know we're running out of time, so I may have to come back to this uh, next time a little more, but... Again, staying within the context of 1 Corinthians, if you look at chapter 8, you see again a reference to this knowledge. And you see it there as a corrective as well. This is the the section on uh, offering up food sacrifice to idols, but really it's about the exercise of Christian liberties insensitively by those who know that an idol is nothing, but they're not having care or concern for their fellow believer who does not have that knowledge. Okay, so let's just read it really quickly. He says, Now concerning food offered to idols, we know that all of us possess knowledge. This knowledge puffs up. There was the problem with the Corinthians. They had knowledge, but it puffed them up. But love builds up. If anyone imagines that he knows something, he does not yet know as he ought to know. But if anyone loves God, he is known by God. Therefore, as to the eating of food offered to idols, we know that an idol has no real existence. And that there is no God but one. For although there may be so-called gods in heaven or on earth, and indeed there are many gods and many lords, yet for us there is one God, the Father from whom are all things and for whom we exist, and one Lord, Jesus Christ, through whom are all things and through whom we exist. However, not all possess this knowledge. But some, through former association with idols, eat food as really offered to an idol, and their conscience being weak is defiled. Food will not commend us to God. We are no worse off if we do not eat and no better off if we do. But take care that this right of yours does not somehow become a stumbling block to the weak. 
For if anyone sees you who have knowledge eating in an idol's temple, will he not be encouraged if his conscience is weak to eat food offered to idols? And so by your knowledge, this weak person is destroyed, the brother for whom Christ died. Thus, sinning against your brothers and wounding their conscience when it is weak, you sin against Christ. Therefore, if food makes my brother stumble, I will never eat meat lest I make my brother stumble. The Apostle Paul in that last verse is demonstrating a communication of knowledge, an understanding of the full breadth of the counsel of God. The Corinthians were demonstrating a prideful knowledge, a knowledge that puffed up. And they were saying, I can eat food offered to idols. An idol is nothing. The food offered to idols is therefore nothing. It doesn't affect anybody. But the full counsel of God would say, don't cause your brother to stumble. You are to have care and concern for your brother, so much so that you'd be willing to give up your rights for the benefit of your brother. They were articulating something quite the contrary, which was a false knowledge, which was a prideful knowledge. The Apostle Paul is encouraging them to communicate and to live out a knowledge that is based on the full counsel of God's Word. The other thing I would mention here, and I know that we're running out of time, I can hear everybody out there. One last thing. Knowledge is related, this knowledge he's talking about is related to our temporal apprehension of revelation. What I mean by temporal is like current space and time apprehension or, or understanding of things. Understanding of revelation in particular, of God's word. In 1 Corinthians 13, verses 8 to 9, that chapter on balancing all of this out with love, he says, Love never ends. As for prophecies, they will pass away. As for tongues, they will cease. As for knowledge, it will pass away. For we know in part and we prophesy in part, but when the perfect comes, the partial will pass away. So in other words, this spirit-enabled gift lies not merely in the apprehension of knowledge of a temporal type, of of a currently revealed type, but more fully the articulation of that knowledge of what God has already revealed. But when Christ comes and we know as we are fully known, then there will be no need for this kind of gift to be operating amongst believers. This is about the temporal apprehension uh, and the ability to communicate our knowledge of the full counsel of God's word in a way that is helpful to believers. It is for the common good. I had to rush through that last part. Maybe we'll pick that up when we come back. Uh,